Hello, I'm Laura Castleton, U.S. Head of Portfolio Construction and Strategy at Janice Henderson Investors. Is a brighter future possible? At Janice Henderson, we think it is. For 90 years, we've worked to help clients achieve superior financial outcomes and fulfill our purpose of investing in a brighter future together. We know that this means our thinking and our investments are helping to shape millions of brighter futures for the next 90 years and beyond. To learn more, go to JaniceHenderson.com. Morgan, indeed it does. And thank you very much. Live from the NASDAQ market site in the heart of New York City's Times Square, this is Fast Money. And here's what's on tap today. Crude crumble WTI dropping nearly 4% back below 80 bucks a barrel. Is this move a warning sign about a coming global slowdown? We will debate that one. Plus, travel confusion. Expedia, TripAdvisor roaring higher while the airlines are in a holding pattern. What's behind this booking bifurcation? That's a, that's a phrase right there. You'll take that one home. And later, inside Rivian's results, we're going to break down the EV trade, what Robinhood's numbers are saying about the retail investor, and Disney on deck. You just saw Igor be on tomorrow. The options action ahead of their earnings. I'm Tyler Matheson, in for Melissa Lee, coming to you live from Studio B at the NASDAQ. On the desk tonight, Tim Seymour. Karen Feinerman, Dan Nathan, and Steve Grasso. Welcome to all of you, and we're glad you're here. We're going to get to the uh, drop in oil later this hour, but first, a market move we hadn't seen in two years. The NASDAQ rising another percent today, bringing its win streak now to eight days in a row. That is the longest since November of 2021. The S&P and Dow now each posting seven-day runs of their own. Those two indexes now within 5% of their highs for the year, almost erasing that summer swoon. Uh, let's check out the moves in the mega caps today. Amazon, highest close since September. Microsoft, record, Apple, Meta, Alphabet, all higher as well. Meanwhile, the equal-weighted S&P, far uh, uh, underperforming the benchmark again. It is back in negative territory for the year. So does this divergence, Tim, give you reason to pause? I assume you would be more comforted if all stocks were taking part, not just a few. Well, we, we've been debating this over the last couple of days. Do you, do you want the breadth in the market? Do you want to see the equal-weighted S&P outperform the, the, the market-weighted, which we know um, has been – look, if you own market-weighted, owning the market, you've been successful. And if you think about today's close, you talked about the NASDAQ. It's within 1.5% of the all-time highs if you look at the triple Qs and the NASDAQ 100. It's made a relative cycle high to the S&P. So this move off of the last October lows, I mean, um, and I've, I, I believe that market leadership coming from the NASDAQ 100 and then uh, really that being led by the semiconductors is what investors should want to see to take the market higher. But we want to see breadth here. Uh, and we've talked about that underperformance. If you look at the, the RSP ETF or just equal weighted, you know, we're talking about underperforming by almost 14 percent. And really, although you had some good news last week for that outperformance, it really hasn't. And, and so that's probably a negative tell. I'm sure Dan's got a view on this. We've talked about this yeah. over the years when NASDAQ stocks have outperformed. It's but been it, narrow. It, it, and that's the market. percent on the QQQs yeah, so far it, this it, year. I mean, but it's all of these 10 stocks. I mean, yeah. if you look at the NASDAQ 100, those top 10 stocks make up more than 40% of the weight of it. And so, again, you know, it's interesting to me today. I think this is a new closing all-time high for Microsoft today. It was a little higher in July intraday. And, and we were talking about that. You talk about cycle highs. I mean, for the entire bit of enthusiasm that was like being demonstrated 
demonstrated in these top 10 names and a lot of other smaller cap names in the summer in and around AI the day that Microsoft came out with that co-pilot pricing, right? And they just started charging for it on November 1st. It was kind of an interesting bookend, right? So it topped out then, sold off 15%. The results were better than expected with, I think, expectations had come down. So the stock's been moving higher. It's literally dragging up a bunch of other names in the space. Adobe closed at a new 52-week high today. Look at Meta, which has been trading really well over the last couple of quarters. People didn't love that guidance over the last few months. It's been consolidating, and that's very near um, its 52-week high. So, again, I think if you are... to, to, to Tim's point about the market cap weight, they're doing all the lifting again because I can look at no shortage of sectors that act really poorly. And, that, and, and, and I think that's one. what they're going to continue doing. They're the most widely held. So this was about positioning. It was about rates. It was about issuance. So everyone got so negative. So they had to run everything back, short covering. Issuance, less than we had thought the market was going to deliver. deliver. Rates were closer to cuts than we are to the next rate rising period. All of that is a tailwind. And where does the money go? To the largest cap stocks. To what's worked. To what's worked. And every ETF, the passive investing is people own ETFs. They don't own individual names. Those top holders of those big, large cap names will continue to buy those dips. So unfortunately, we're looking for an outperformance of equal weight. I just don't see it ever being longer lasting than a couple of days. Karen, I mean, one of the things that was interesting to me last week, what, am I, correct me if I'm wrong here, the Russell Never had wrong, a good one. <laughs> <laughs> That's what I tell uh, JoJo every, every evening. Um, let's talk a little bit about smaller cap stocks. Where are they in this? I mean, they're off the mat, but, but I, not, yeah, right. It's, it's really, they haven't come remotely close to where, and, and the persistence of the underperformance has been so long. That's sort of surprising to me. So I own a lot of the, you know, the Magnificent Seven, but then I own a lot of stuff that's sort of in that S&P underweight that really hasn't, it's just been getting cheaper and cheaper. You know, we've talked about um, things like Kellogg's or what, Kellanova, things like that, where I hate the name, but there is... What? Rolls off your tip of your tongue. Yeah. yeah. I don't know but where they came up with that. But anyway, I think that there is some value out there. Nobody seems to care where value is right now. So I'm sticking with this sort of barbell. You, you know, the, the, it's very interesting. I would guess that most people who are in the market in an index fund, in an S&P 500 fund, are buying the market cap weighted one because those are the most popular ones. And right? it's the most liquid. So then, then you have to buy all of the underlying stocks. So they've that had are a good year. Is there new money going into the market here? I mean, I, I don't get the sense. I got the sense this is more about positioning and short covering and people that were uber bearish. And, and look, there's always money flowing into the market. Um, but but I think what's interesting about what we've seen during those periods where the equal the market weighted is outperformed, as we've said, that's really been the move this year. That's been the move off of the lows last October is you start to see that broaden. So you see like what you see today, you saw that software companies and there's a reason for it. I mean, you had a couple big uh, numbers, Datadog and some other folks. Uh, Snowflake uh, has had good numbers. So you have this dynamic where you start to see it broaden into Software. You start to see it broaden into some of the more high multiple tech. If we get some help from interest rates, I think it expands. But it is disappointing for someone that also owns a lot of uh, real economy stocks, a lot of industrials, and certainly some banks. No, they, I mean, there's nothing there. And we've talked, those are bear markets. But re- real, real economy equals cyclical, in my opinion, right? Mm-hmm. So if you think about some of the data that we've had just over the last week or so, that jobs data, that manufacturing data, and you think about, okay, fine, rates, can't, rates were only at 5% in the 10-year for what, like a couple of weeks. 
So they're back to where they were a month ago. You know, so the higher for longer narrative is still intact, you know, and especially if you're running a business. And like, I think one of the through lines that, that I take away from Q3 earnings was really about Q4 guidance and beyond and the lack of visibility that companies are going to have in a very volatile macro environment. And so to me, if you start thinking about 2024, which we all are, what are the estimates for S&P 500 earnings? Where are input costs like commodities and the like? I, it looks like despite the fact that some of the inflationary readings have come down, you know, margins have peaked. Like, like that's, that's it. And so if earnings estimates are a bit too high right now for 2024, there probably needs to be a bigger reset for stocks at some point. So and to me, awesome. I'm not chasing this right here right and, now. and it's also a point of relative it's it's a point of reference too so when you talk about where the tenure was it's where it was a couple of weeks ago but where is it now and where is it going to be and it's probably going to be lower in the next couple of weeks slash months but if you look at going down that curve the russell 2000 40 percent is unprofitable companies mm-hmm. the russell 3000 60 percent is unprofitable companies so to tim and dan's point when you look cyclical and you look at real economy stocks, if you think the economy is getting worse, those earnings are going to get worse. So you're not you'd rather go back to safety, large cap. Tech, but haven't they priced it? Or in? just balance sheets. I mean, I, I guess the question you have to ask about the real economy is when I look at at Ford and GM, you know, we know what's going on in auto. But I look at some of the staples. I look at healthcare. I look at real economy that tends to be defensive during times like this. Energy, healthcare, staples. Um, the market already priced in that we know that they were probably at peak margin. And, and look, pricing power that was coming out of COVID. So it's it, it's a very interesting time because there's no uh, there, there's nothing that tells me that it's going to get better on margin for Staples. But I want to own Staples and utilities here. Mm-hmm. I do. I want to own healthcare. They've Our next guest is going to talk a little bit about about bonds, and and later in the program we're going to talk about oil. Is oil telling you anything right here? Going back below eighty. Well, I think I think oil. To t- Tim said before that they already priced in when you talk about cyclicals. If they already priced in the negative, I think oil priced in the negative of supply chain disruptions, geopolitical issues. We had Russia, Ukraine. Now now we have Israel and Gaza. And a lot of that was front loaded. So what commodities do is they price in the worst and then they back off of that. So I think supply chain disruptions were probably overly priced in. And that's why you saw it back off. All right. Let's move uh, to our next guest, top uh, bond strategist, warning that the mega cap rally may be on borrowed time. He cites demand issues tied to tomorrow's 10-year Treasury note auction. Ben Emmons is the head of fixed income and a senior portfolio manager at New Edge Wealth. Ben, welcome. Talk us through this auction that is coming tomorrow on the 10 years. What you expect to see, there's going to be a lot of supply in the pipeline. Where's demand? Yeah, that's the big question, Tyler. You know, we if we know that China and Japan and other foreign investors have been not active in those auctions anymore for the last sort of two years. And now the banks, too, are not as active anymore. You know, they continue to sell treasuries. So who's going to step in here to buy it? You know, it, it probably is us, like the private sector or mutual funds. Now, we've been down a yield now about over 55 base points over the past week. So there's a pretty good move. And to Steve's point, that probably was a lot of short covering. You know, there was news out that right before the Treasury announced this, the supply, the, you know, the hedge funds took even more short positions than before. And right as that supply number came out, all the covering probably has happened. So the setup to, for tomorrow is not that great. And the demand is unclear. So I think it's going to be a challenging auction. So I think I heard Steve just say that you think rates are going to be lower, right, four months from now, five months from now. Do you see it that way or not? 
It could be. I mean, you know, we have an economy that's from 5% slowing down in this quarter. And if that continues, ultimately rates should adjust to that path of growth down. I don't think, though, that we're going to go all the way back to 3%. I mean, for that, you have to see inflation really start to decline. And that has not yet been the case. And that's what we know from the Fed, too. They're, they're hesitant to pull the trigger yet on, on any kind of rate cut. So I think we need to see somewhat more data before we can actually say we're a real trend down rate. I guess, but, but there's a lot of supply coming, right? One way or another, there's a lot of supply coming. We don't know whether the, where the demand is. Yeah. And some of the big players that have been supplying the demand are not going to be there. That would argue that rates could resume a rise upward, right? Well, so if you look at the technical picture, Tyler, that's what it's indicating to me. Like, so we're sitting right at the 50-day moving average, and we're sort of building this support. Uh, we're staying in this really nice uptrend in the 10-year. Uh, if you zoom out, you look from since 2007 to now, and you take Fibonacci retracements, we actually should retrace all the way to 100% if we're going to stick here around this level, right? And if, if you believe in the technicals, you should actually see higher. Now, if you tie that to the demand-supply picture in the Treasury market, not really resolved, then that leads you to that conclusion. Only, I think, from as a last point, what we saw recently, we, we popped over 5%, there were buyers there. And I do think that if you're getting a bit of an overshoot on rates, there will be new buyers. It's just, at this point, this is not a good setup at 4.5. Tim? Well, I, I think it must be an interesting time for you, though. It, for the first time in probably 15 years, you, you're right in the spotlight of investors coming to you really excited about yield opportunities. And I bet there's as much anxiety that yields are going to go down um, and they're not going to be able to lock in these juicy yields. This is the conversation I have with clients all the time. Um, and what I'm hearing from you is that the technical picture um, says, don't worry about it. You're going to get your spot. And, and if anything, um, you do not need to be locking in long term here and that the yield curve actually uh, may be a place to stay a little bit nimble and at the shorter end right now. Yeah, I would fully agree with that view. I mean, in fact, this actually we have now more or less like a flat curve close to flat. And so why would you take all this 30 year risk and just get paid in the two to five, seven year part of the curve for the same return? If anything, there's actually an even better opportunity to say like munis, which we'll, we'll, we'll get there in talk, a minute, get there in a minute. You know, these yields are really indeed attractive. So to your point, like, yes, we have clients too that are anxious, like, I don't want to miss this yeah. moment, right? On the other hand, there's anxious about, well, this supply picture is still pretty troubling. You know, we could get a little higher here, but if it does get higher, it's a real buy opportunity. Karen? So let me ask you, just for the auction tomorrow, what are you looking for and what would be an outcome that would really move the markets? So I think, Karen, like, one, you look overnight what's going on in the, in the data. So we got CPI from China, we got CPI from Germany. So that's interesting to watch because that rates are reacting to that. And then let's kind of see if it rallies a lot into that auction, then it, it could be this really difficult setup, right? Because if things rally too much, it tends to be a poorly bid auction. If, it's, if it is, say, poorly bid, I would think that you're going to get a bit of a pop in rates and a bit of a different picture than we had the last few days. I can't say if it's all completely turned immediately, but I find this 50-day moving average holding so strongly the last couple of sessions kind of telling. It means that markets are waiting for... Is this supply going to be digested well? If not, then you see maybe a move higher. Dan, and then I want to squeeze in one on music. So, so Ben, 
talk to me. I have a chart in front of me right here, 25 years, Fed funds rate, okay? So the last few times, we've had a r- aggressive rate hikes, right? And into 2000, um, it capped out at 6.5%. When they started going lower, it went to 1%, okay? Then we had rising up to 5.25%, stopped going up in 2006. When they went down, they went to zero, okay? In 2017, they started going up. In 18, they went from 2.25% to zero again. So here we are now. We're at 55 on the upper... Tell me why it's a great idea to buy stocks. If you're just looking over the last, see what I'm doing here, Karen? The (laughs) last 24 years after really aggressive rate hikes, when they start to lower, they lower aggressively. It's elevator up, right? You know what I mean? You know, the escalator up, elevator down. I mean, like, that's it. And it's not good for stocks. Yeah, that's the recession story, really. You know, if if actually the Fed gets to the point that it, it's not going to moderate the rate hike cycle to a hold longer and then maybe one step down and easing. But what you're saying, we really flip and we start cutting aggressively. And we're talking about a two, 300 basis point rate cutting in a matter of six to nine months. That's a big recession period, I think. So it doesn't look like it right now. But what I think what we can take cue from is our, our central banks like in emerging markets that have risen rates pretty high and restrictive and inflation starts to decline. And that's what the Fed story now is, too. OK, if that continues, we can at least moderate interest rates to an extent. Otherwise, they become even more restrictive. I think that's a positive for stock markets. And that may be what the stock market is saying. It's like this is going to be a moderate rate cutting cycle, which indicates, a, a if anything, a mild downturn or no downturn, as opposed to this slashing down to the zero bound. And then, yeah. Right, but that, of course, that's the intent. That's what, where they are right there. They were there in 06. They were there in 2000. I'm sure they were there in 2018. But it's not the way it's worked out in principle, right? And if you think of all of the headwinds that we have right now, I just don't know how they're going to land the plane. This goes back to what we were debating, no landing, soft landing, hard landing. You know what I mean? Like the idea of the stock market right here is pricing a very soft landing. It very much is. And, and that's... Again, based upon the way, I guess, simply employment and, and inflation is behaving. You know, we've seen inflation nicely moderating and unemployment rate goes up, but it's all very gentle. You know, if that starts to change, you get a big drop in inflation, big move in unemployment rate up. That's a total different game. And then, yeah, the Fed will be back to zero really quick. All right, Ben Emmons, thanks very much. We appreciate you. your time today. We didn't get to the Muni question. We will next time okay. because Munis are sexy right now. They oh, are very sexy. Sexy <laughs> for the first time in a long time. Ben Emmons, New Age Wealth. We appreciate it. All right, let's trade this, uh, this whole uh, kit and caboodle here. Steve, thoughts? The headwind to the market has been rising rate environment. If the market can see through rising rates and looks for lower rates, that's going to be a positive. That's where the bulls win. I- I'm more worried. I'm not worried about them cutting with a recession. I'm worried about rates getting out of control and popping above five again. I don't care. You see if, that scenario as a possibility? Well, I, I see, to Ben's point, if you look on a retracement. Five on the 10-year, you're talking about. Yeah, oh, okay. it, it, you look on a retracement, we can probably moderate between four and three-quarters and five again. I don't think rates are going to have a blow-off top here. I, I think rates are probably going to cascade lower from here. Anybody want to put a button on it? Well, I going once, going twice. I'll I'll say that the economy we have right now is is not giving the Fed any reason to think about aggressive cuts. I agree with the the history Dan's talking about is at some point it's going to be too late. We know the lag effects here. Um, I I think the 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 reality is that right now we're in a place where interest rates are probably staying higher for longer for as much related to technical reasons and financing a deficit um, than we've ever seen in the last 15 years. 
right. That'll be the final thought here. Coming up, though, you have heard that the devil is in the details. But you know who else is? Our own Karen Feinerman. She is digging into the nitty-gritty of the luxury merger, merger between Tapestry and Capri Holdings, and she's got some concerns. Her retail report is ahead. But first, two EV makers on the move after hours, Rivian and Lucid, both reporting results. We will dig into those numbers when Fast Money returns in two. You seek the key, but first, you must learn the ways of precision, craft, and performance with Acura's all-electric ZDX. With a premium Bang & Olufsen sound system up to a 313-mile range and a Type S variant with an estimated 500 horsepower, the ZDX is their most powerful SUV yet. Unlock the energy when you visit Acura.com to order yours today. Wouldn't it be great to have all your investment and retirement accounts in one place? Yahoo Finance, our sponsor today, makes it easy. I use it to put my investment account and 401k accounts into one hub and get expert tips that help me confidently manage my money. For more than 25 years, Yahoo Finance has been the brand behind every great investor. Whether you're a seasoned investor or are looking for that extra guidance, Yahoo Finance gives you all the tools and data you need in one place. They're the number one finance destination, producing a holistic look at the financial news cycle, including breaking news, original editorial perspectives, analyst ratings, independent research, customizable charts, and so much more. Securely link your brokerage accounts for a unified view of your wealth, including 401k and other investments. A comprehensive perspective is what sets apart great investors, and it's how Yahoo Finance ensures you have the insight to look at your wealth in its entirety. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit the brand behind every great investor, yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. That's yahoofinance.com. All right, welcome back to Fast Money. We've got a double earnings alert for you. Rivian slightly higher on a uh, top and bottom line beat, while Lucid charging lower after a miss on revenue and revising its production outlook lower. Phil LeBeau has all the numbers. Hey, Phil. Tyler, a tale of two EV companies going in different directions right now. In part, you see that with the guidance. We'll talk about both in just a bit. By the way, I'm listening to the Rivian conference call. It's clear RJ Scaringe believes that they're in the sweet spot right now in terms of increased production while lowering their costs. Let me give you the highlights from the third quarter. Better than expected, they lowered the losses to a buck 19 a share versus a buck 32 estimate. Revenue slightly better than expected. Their loss per vehicle, and this is important, they've brought it down almost $2,000 per vehicle, still losing more than $30,000 per vehicle. They were losing about $140,000 per vehicle third quarter of last year. So they continue to bring that down. And they have also announced that Rivian and Amazon jointly have decided to end their exclusive arrangement with Rivian building electric delivery vehicles. They're still going to do it for Amazon, but they can now open this up and pursue uh, business with other commercial entities. Now for the important part, the change in guidance. And there are three important ones here. Most important, 54,000 is the new production guidance, was 52,000. By the way, the previous guidance was all given at the end of Q2. So this is an update in just one quarter. The EBITDA loss will be 4 billion instead of 4.2 billion. CapEx is coming down to 1.1 billion from 1.7. 
all stuff that we are going to be discussing tomorrow morning on Squawk Box. First on CNBC, we will talk with RJ Scaringe, founder and CEO of Rivian. And we're going to be talking about what he's seeing with demand and the demand profile in this market. He's just discussed that on the conference call. Let's switch gears and quickly talk about Lucid because it's going in the opposite direction as the company reported uh, a Q3 loss of... Um, what do we have here? 28 cents a share and the revenue coming in weaker than expected. But it's the guidance. That's what's weighing on this stock right now. The company cutting its plan of building 10,000 vehicles this year. It's now planning to build between 8,000 and 8,500 vehicles this year. And they're also going to be, um, as they do this, trying to conserve their capital. I just got off the phone within the last hour with uh, Peter Rawlinson, CEO of Lucid. A couple of things he said to me. First of all, we are adjusting to challenging conditions. Obviously, in the higher end of the EV market, it's, it's tough selling because there's so many competitors in there and Lucid has struggled to get as much traction as they would like to get. He says we need to be prudent to preserve capital. So we'll be on the Lucid call, which starts in about five minutes. Bottom line is this, Tyler. You got two EV companies here. Rivian clearly sees that it has traction, continues to grow. Lucid still trying to find the key point here where they lower production and they can lower their losses. All right, Phil. Spirit Aerosystems also dropping after yeah. hours. Now it's the plan to raise some capital. What do we know? Uh, raising at least $400 million. Actually, I think it's $430 million. $200 million through shares being sold, $200 million through debt being uh, offered, offered, often, auctioned off into the market. Bottom line is this. They just got $100 million infusion, capital infusion from Boeing a couple of weeks ago. They're trying to stabilize their production system. This is what the market's looking at and going, you need another $400 million? Where, where is the bottom here? New CEO Pat Shanahan has his work cut out trying to convince everyone. We understand the problems here when it comes to the fuselages we're building for Boeing and for Airbus, and we've got our arms around it. That's not the message that comes out when you have to raise another $400 million. So that's is, why the is, stock's under pressure. Is Spirit the fuselage company? <laughs> I mean. Yes. It's the old Boeing on, We had an under on when the they word spun fuselage. It off many years ago. Yeah, say that again. I'm sorry. It's the old Boeing fuselage. It was part of Boeing for years. They spun Thank it you. off in the late 90s, became Spirit. And so that they are an independent company, but struggling right now. All right, Phil, thanks very much. Tim just loves the word fuselage. Drink. That's why we got it. Fuselage. This is better than playing Bob Newhart. We, Every time you we, hear it, we got, got it about four times, fuselage. That, of course, is taking a shot in our concert. All right, let's talk about these two uh, EV stocks. What do we think here? Lucid? Well, Lucid, I mean, you can't lose three-plus billion too many times, except <laughs> if your biggest shareholder is, um, you know, a sovereign wealth fund and public investment fund, and they are willing to pay Ford whatever Ford. it takes. Ford what? can lose $3 billion whenever they want, right? So, so Rivian, it, it goes Tesla, Rivian, Lucid. Lucid's price of the cars are 100000 plus. Yeah. So Tesla's been cutting the price of the cars, increasing their share. Rivian is the best second choice to <coughs> Tesla. But there's, it's still Tesla's world. Everyone else is operating in it. And they haven't monetized the charging network yet. That could be a Tesla $5 billion. Has Tesla has it. Yes. That could Tesla. be $5 billion of revenue that's untapped. No one else has that kicker. You've seen it become a very volatile stock. If the market goes higher, Tesla goes up another 10%. Amazing number. Th uh, Rivian losing 30000 per vehicle down from what? Did he say 140000 yeah, that, that, that is like, to me, it's a really dumb number. I mean, they're going to they're gonna make 54000 
thousand cars this year, you know, and Tesla is supposed to do 1.8 million, right? So yeah. to me, it really is about okay. They have 10 billion dollars in cash. They just like lowered their they're, cash loss estimate. They're to also raising equity here. Is also in the aftermarket. Yeah. So, so I mean, like to me, like the story is it's all in front of Rivian, you know, when you think about it. And I think that the lack of ex- exclusivity for the vans with Amazon from a commercial standpoint, I think, is pretty good. I mean, like to me, this is a call option on an interesting early mover in the EV space. Um, but who knows? You know, I mean, they're gonna they're gonna continue to run through cash. All right, let's uh, let's take a break here. There's a lot more fast to come, and here is what's coming up next. Looking into luxury, Karen's digging into the details of a major merger in the luxury retail space. Feinerman's Fine Print is next. And speaking of deals, could some energy M&A shake up the oil space? Our next guest says some crude coupling could be just what the sector needs. Who he says should team up next. You're watching Fast Money, live from the NASDAQ market site in Times Square. We're back right after this. What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration, our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. All right, welcome back to Fast Money, everybody. A fashion faux pas for shares of Capri Holdings and Tapestry today. The FTC seeking more information on the $8.5 billion luxury mega merger. Tapestry agreed to buy Capri in August, but our Karen Feinerman has been pushing for a conscious uncoupling. Ooh. <laughs> She's got Feinerman fine that print is. on the deal. Yeah, how about well, that? Yeah, how about that? Go. That was a good one from our cracks team team there. Um, I, I'm, I'm, I just think it, it was sort of a deal that they shouldn't have done. Now, the question is, can they get out of it? So what happened today, the FTC requesting more information, that just makes the deal as one sort of element of risk that people sort of dismissed. Uh, as I would have, because you see very, very, very few or no retail deals that are antitrust. However, this is a, you know, this is an antitrust uh, mission, and we don't know what will happen. So it's going to take some time for them to comply. But let's look at tomorrow or Thursday what happens. Capri reports and Tapestry both report. My guess, if current history in the retail space is, is any guide, neither will be good. This could just increase the spread more. Now, deals worth $57 in cash. Capri is 48 and change. So that is an enormous spread. So the next thing is this, you know, this, to call this merger anti-competitive is really, it's kind of ridiculous, but yet this is where, where do they are. overlap, if at all? They overlap in women's handbags. But there's, a, there's tons there of women handbags. Tons, tons. As I said, I've never seen a re, except for Office Depot staples, which the government said, no, those two can't merge. They'll be too powerful. One of them is now bankrupt and the other is on the verge of bankruptcy. So um, the last thing, let's just look at the charts. We see Capri, when the deal was announced, that was great. I was a lucky, lucky shareholder, said goodbye. But the downside now, and that's tapestry, look at the, it landed with a thud with their shareholders. They didn't love this deal. Sort of if Capri couldn't make Capri work, how does Capistry make Capri work? I don't know that it does. But if the deal doesn't happen, where does Capri go down to? Probably lower than where it was before because the retail market is worse. 
All that having been said, though, they still are likely to close the deal because in the merger agreement, it says that Tapestry must litigate. They must do everything they can. To not make everything. It go through. They must it. litigate. Even if the even if the DOJ or FTC sues, they have to litigate. Try to close the deal. They're only out as if it goes on for more than 18 months. Then they can say we're done. Can I ask an obvious question? I mean, I mean, it's not obvious. And you, I hope you've I been the well. I mean, you mm-hmm. you own you own Capri, so you're really on the right side of this one. What were they thinking at Tapestry? I mean, the market has basically said you were so offsides on this deal um, and, and, and punished the company while uh, it was a get-out-of-jail-free card with all due respect yeah, to yeah. Capri. No, I'll take it. I'm not proud. But, I'll so take what, it. What, was, what was the rationale? Because the, the, the concept of them wanting, you know, we know what the market's done. I mean, there's, a, there's an ARB, even if they could just get out of this deal and then redo it. But yeah. the reality yeah. is, what were they thinking? I don't know. I think luxury. They, were, they wanted yeah. Jimmy Choo. They wanted Versace. There's a limited amount of luxury brands and the right? lower. So uh, Karen and I have both been in Capri. I always pronounce it wrong. Karen corrects me. So we got that ni- nice get out of jail free. And I'm out of Capri now. I bought Tapestry on the sell off. I'm still in Tapestry. I think the lower it goes, I think the board will force Tapestry to sell Jimmy Choo or Versace, and the stock trades up from that. Not going to grab a good price for it, though. Sounds like my wife. I want Jimmy Choo. I want Versace. Jeez, chill out, man. All right, we're going to take a quick break. Coming up, some more merger musings. Could deal-making in the oil sector give that sector uh, its energy back? Paul Sankey will join us next to pump into the oil trade and break down how crude can get its groove back. Don't go anywhere. We've got more fast in two. Welcome back to Fast Money, everybody. Stocks continuing their run higher. The S&P and NASDAQ clinching their longest winning streaks in nearly two years today. The S&P and Dow up seven days in a row. The tech-heavy NASDAQ notching an eight-day win streak. Some fast movers from today's session. DraftKings continuing its run post-earnings, up more than 30% since last week alone. Shares of Uber rising despite an earnings miss. This morning, uh, the company seeing accelerating gross bookings, trips, and monthly active consumers. Uber's stock has now doubled already this year. And some more after-hours action. eBay lower despite an earnings beat. Revenues coming in in line with estimates. Shares of Toast, however, getting burned down nearly 20% after an earnings miss. Dan, let's talk toast. Yeah, this is a tough one. I mean, listen, again, this was like a pull forward pandemic sort of name here. Um, low gross margins, path to profitability has been the thing that's kept this thing volatile. You give guidance like they did right now. And, you know, this is like on his way to making new, um, you know, all-time lows in a way. So really tough one. Looks kind of cheap if you're looking at it on a multiple to sales and you look at the end markets that they serve and the like here. But with pushing out those sort of profitability targets, it goes back to what we were talking about, I think, in the start of the show here is like if you are in this environment, you don't have that path and you have a lot of volatility as it relates to your guidance. It's just not a good place to be. So this is disappointing. Let's talk uh, DraftKings, Tim. It's been not just a, a ser- it's been an avalanche of upgrades from the street after numbers that showed market share gains, uh, profitability for the first time effectively and an addressable market that for this company is getting more exciting by the day. So uh, as somebody that was long the stock through to the low 30s, sold upside calls, got called away, thought I'd be able to buy a lower. Uh, I, you know, it's up 40 percent in eight days. Uh, I'm, I'm, I'm not going to chase it because I can't, but uh, I want to own it. I hope to own it lower. 
Alrighty. Meantime, crude oil falling below $80, lowest close since July. But our next guest says a potential wave of M&A in the energy space could have the market falling in love with big oil all over again. Sankey Research President Paul Sankey joins us now on the Fast Line. Paul, what do you see in oil as it goes down to its lowest level since July? Risk off, obviously. I mean, I think the backdrop here was that the original uh, Hamas attacks on Israel came right after Saudi was uh, talking about uh, some sort of agreement with the Biden administration regarding more oil in exchange for diplomatic relations with Israel. So the fundamental backdrop was actually quite, you know, a, a mitigation of Middle East risk, which may have triggered the Hamas attacks. And of course, the Hezbollah leader comments on Friday really confirmed that more or less this is a, a localized event, uh, a major one, albeit, but localized. At the same time, Iran is selling almost all its oil to China. So we don't see an Iranian outage, which is the really big risk of all this. So risk off it is. And that leads us into combined with very warm weather forecasts and some weak Chinese e export data and, and high Russian exports. There's a lot of things negative. Uh, we're focusing on M&A, as you mentioned. What's the trading range for the commodity over the next, say, two sixty days? Well, at the moment, as I said, the weather forecast is is red hot for U.S., which is the first thing. And, you know, we're concerned about going into winter at this time of year. And it's it's looking very warm for the next six to 10, 12 days. So that's a bit of a problem. Uh, we do have a flaw somewhat on oil because of the SPR, the Strategic Petroleum Reserve rebuild that kicks in at $79 WTI. So that will now provide a little bit of support here. Uh, so we don't see oil going much below 70 before winter. Um, but, you know, the, the situation in the Middle East was a lot of heat that really didn't affect oil markets when it came down to it. We had a minor outage uh, of Israeli gas that affects European markets, but European gas markets right now are very, very well supplied. So we've already seen a couple of deals in oil in the past three or four weeks. Uh, who, the, who will be the next buyers? Who will be the next sellers? Well, our argument is that the, the, the medium rank oil companies really from Oxy and below, Occidental Petroleum and below, need to scale up to get bigger to improve their multiples. And that's really a reversal of what we were saying for the past five years, which is that the companies should shrink to grow, should cut their capex, should increase their returns, and therefore increase share, uh, returns to shareholders. In the case now, as we see Exxon buying Pioneer that you're referencing, Chevron buying Hess, what we're seeing is finally the big oils are getting the highest multiples and that's a new era for the space. So we think we'll see a lot more deals. People are talking Devon and Marathon Oil. People are talking uh, the potential for ConocoPhillips to do more with a private equity player. There's a number of things out there in the middle ranks that would really transform companies. The, 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 in the back end, we expect to see consolidation as well. So there's quite a long list. Well, quite a long list. It could be very active. Paul Sankey, thanks very much. We appreciate it. Thanks a lot. All right, let's trade this. Uh, how do we wade into this? Well, I, I think, you know, if you're really talking about dipping a toe in, if we're going to continue this metaphor, I mean, you know, in Chevron's case, this is a stock that's gone from 185 down to 140, 41, 44. Um, some of this is the Hess deal. Some of this is the move in, in underlying crude. Um, this is a company, and Paul will say, as an oil analyst, they value companies at the, at, at the present value of their future flows. And their flows include current assets. And they just bought probably the choicest asset in the world in terms of 30 percent of at least this Guiana project. Uh, uh, yeah, project that, that has on. So I, I think this is a case where a company that's growing their dividend actually has exposure to the best oil reserve and the best 
project out there is a really interesting opportunity. I get the correlation between the underlying, but this is the point. These companies are run a little bit differently, and they're highly, highly cash flow generative. And I think those two companies, Exxon and Chevron, look very interesting here. Anybody got a final thought here? Quick. Yeah, so, so I think the larger degree names have probably seen their best days as far as stock prices. They're, they're more efficient than they've ever been, but their stock price, to me, has peaked out. And I think you're going to see the commodity range bound, to your point before, 80, 95 is probably the range bound. I think the sweet spot for M&A is in the 80s. So you're going to see a lot of players try to consolidate at these levels. But the large integrated names, if you look at the charts, whether they were the buyer or the acquiree, both charts are down. All right, let's take a quick break now. Uh, and coming up, should you cruise into the travel stocks or are these names about to hit some turbulence? Find out what names our traders are booking into their portfolios ahead. But first, we got an earnings alert on Robinhood shares dropping after reporting results. You see it on the chart there. We will dive into that quarter next. Those trades and more when fast money returns quicker than an NFL timeout. Welcome back to Fast Money, everybody. Robinhood out with results shares at after-hours lows after the company posted a revenue miss. Kate Rooney has the details. Hi, Kate. Hi, Tyler. So Robinhood really used to be the poster child for active investing. Now it's leaning a lot more on higher rates amid slower trading activity. Robinhood reporting a miss on revenue and a drop in monthly active users. Earnings were back in the red this quarter thanks to a legal fine. This comes after a surprise profit. Earlier this year, net interest income was a bright spot almost doubling from a year ago. But on the call, Robinhood executives just saying that Q4 interest revenue is expected to drop by about $20 million. That's in the current quarter. Retail trading was Robinhood's bread and butter during the pandemic. That has fizzled. Transaction-based revenue was down 11%. Options really made up the bulk of that, about 70%. Needed equities and crypto trading slowing. Crypto was down 55%. CFO Jason Warnick telling me that interest income is helping to offset slower trading. As he put it, the business is naturally hedged against changes in interest rates, partially blamed slower trading activity in September as well for the revenue miss. Executives on the call are describing Robinhood a lot more like a bank. They're highlighting retirement accounts and a launch in Europe, as well as high-yield savings. Tyler, back to you. But as you All mentioned, right, thanks very much. Let's down. trade this one, Tim. What do you think? Robin Hood. I, you know, I think it's a story where there's been at least stabilization in the story. A lot of this has just been what's their core audience, what's their differentiation, you know, what is part of this offering. I, you know, I, I get that it was bombed out. I, I just think that there's still going to be some challenges. I think there's going to be challenges also for uh, what continues to allow the business to differentiate itself. All right. Another quick break coming up. Disney earnings on deck. Will it be a magical quarter or is um, Maleficent? Lurking. We will hit the options. I had to pause. Maleficent. 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 Yeah. I think it was Angelina Jolie played yeah. Maleficent. Ma yeah, that, you're probably. Or Maleficent. But she's Maleficent, Maleficent. in many ways. <laughs> All right. Efficient. This is an inefficient anchor here. We're going to go to the option pits for the next prediction. Fast Money is back into. What is it? Maleficent. 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 Yeah, something like that. All right. Yeah. We'll be. We'll bring them. Salabans. <laughs> Welcome back to Fast Money, everybody. Travel stocks having a top-notch Tuesday. TripAdvisor, Expedia, and Booking Holdings all zooming higher after TripAdvisor reported a blowout quarter before the bell. Cruise lines also seeing some green. Norwegian, Royal Caribbean, Carnival all sailing higher as well. And don't forget the hotels. Hyatt, Marriott, Hilton notably higher today. Dan, you pointed out this strength earlier. 
Yeah, I mean, listen, going into earnings season, we were talking about the weakness that we saw in airlines. And then I was really waiting for Airbnb to see what they had to say. And they didn't have great commentary about trends. So it's just kind of interesting to see these platform companies that are all putting up big numbers and they're saying good things about trends going into the new year. So to me, I just find it a little surprising. But that's also one of the things that I really enjoy about earnings season is like kind of taking bits and pieces out of this thing and trying to juxtapose stuff against. Yeah, you see um, um, Expedia last week. Right. 15% 15% a day, and now an 8% today. To that, huh? Yeah, and, and it's really underperformed booking. So, And if you look on a relative valuation basis, I think that's the trade you stay in. And, again, if you look at these names, they, there have been sporadic spurts, and, but staying invested in these names over time I think actually has been paying off. But, but Expedia has lagged the group, and I think you stay there. And now it has made a little progress there. All right, uh, meanwhile, a huge slate of earnings still to come this week. With Disney taking center stage, options traders are feeling bullish as the Magic Kingdom's results come come in. Mike Co joins us now with the action from the pits. Hi, Mike. Hi there. So uh, Disney's implying a move of about 6% right now after they report earnings. And we did see above average call volume, calls outpacing puts by about 1.6 to 1 today. A lot of that activity was focused in the December 90 calls, and that was the result of a large purchase of 2,500 December 90, 95 call spreads. The buyer spent about 90 cents for those, and the buyer of those call spreads is betting that Disney could rise between 7.5% and 12.5% by December expiration, which is just over five weeks away. All right. Thank you uh, very much, Mike. Maleficent. I'm going to keep working that word. I'm going to keep working. See, I thought it was Maleficent. All right. But so. it won't come up again for you. It won't you, come I up think. again for months. It just did. He yeah. just brought it back up again. Yeah. 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 I, I, yeah. Go ahead. Why don't you start up by saying fuscilage? I'm going to go fuselage yeah. and then to Maleficent. <laughs> exactly. The problem with Disney is there's so much going on. There's so much noise. And there's Hulu. What are they going to do with that? What are they going to do with parks? What are they going to do with ESPN? How are they going to monetize stuff going forward? But when you think about it, everyone only cares about streaming. So how are they going to turn that ship around with streaming? This is right around the pandemic lows. I don't think it should be trading there, but I think this is a show me, prove me. At this point, you hold off on buying Disney. And a new CFO well, coming in. What do you and think, a new Karen? CFO, so that, that seems like a very good hire. Mm. You know, I wonder how this potential proxy fight, which seems likely to take place, in the past, I think that um, Nelson Peltz has done a good job in general on boards that he joins. I kind of think Disney should let them on and avoid the fight. They got other things to worry about. All right. Uh, don't miss an exclusive interview with Disney's CEO Bob Iger right after results cross the wire tomorrow at 4 p.m. Eastern time. Uh, that is here uh, on CNBC. Bob Iger tomorrow at 4. Up next, we got some final trade. All right, we got a minute three. Time for the final trades. Let's go around the horn. Tim, starting with you. I'm a buyer of the word maleficent. Chevron, I think I am a buyer of the oil space. I, you know, the, the correlation to the underlying oil price to me is irrelevant right now. This deal with Hess is a great deal. Karen, who knew maleficent? <laughs> yes. Maleficious, whatever. <laughs> anyway, yeah, uh, NVIDIA had a really nice run, strong, strong semiconductor run. Time to sell some upside calls against stock. All right. Never Maleficent, then. Never. Um, Robinhood down 10%. Didn't take a crack at that one. All right. I rallies back a little bit. Oh, I guess. All right. And you, sir? Karen narrated this whole tapestry story, and it makes me think that I think I should be a buyer of this name. This is definitely deep out of the pool. Know your risk tolerance. 
Tapestry. Final trade. Tapestry. All right. Well, that's the. You had the other side of that. I, when they announced the deal, Steve and I both said goodbye, Capri. Thanks for the thanks, Tapestry. Thank, thanks for watching yeah. Fast Money. You know what happens Thank next. You, Jim Kramer starts right now. All opinions expressed by the Fast Money participants are solely their opinions and do not reflect the opinions of CNBC, NBC Universal, their parent company or affiliates, and may have been previously disseminated by them on television, radio, internet, or another medium. You should not treat any opinion expressed on this podcast as a specific inducement to make a particular investment or follow a particular strategy, but only as an expression of an opinion. Such opinions are based upon information the Fast Money participants consider reliable, but neither CNBC nor its affiliates and or subsidiaries warrant its completeness or accuracy, and it should not be relied upon as such. To view the full Fast Money Disclaimer, please visit cnbc.com forward slash Fast Money Disclaimer. Imagine a beautiful afternoon. The sun is shining and you get to enjoy it all because you just sat down on your John Deere mower. The smooth ride lets you escape into your yard. Intuitive controls make you feel like you're one with the machine. And with attachments for every season, you can enjoy it all year long. We could keep trying to put you in the moment, but to really understand what it's like to drive a John Deere mower, you just have to get in the seat. Learn more at johndeere.com slash get in the seat or visit a dealer near you.